This is a special episode of the Babylon Project, produced in partnership with the International Podcast Month. Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. But tonight, we are talking about a science fiction franchise centered around a space station in neutral territory, where empires meet to discuss politics, where an ancient evil arises the threat in the galaxy, and where we are very interested in kissing aliens. (laughs) It's, uh, just not the one we usually talk about. Uh, yes, we are here because Mass Effect Legendary Edition has dragged us down the hole of replaying the trilogy in the exact same way we do every time. <laughs> just because we can't just subject you to us three screaming about it, we brought in a professional. Joining the squad tonight is returning guest Kat Valenti. Kat, welcome back to the program. Hi. For those of us who might not have listened to your initial uh, visit to the station, Kat, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, uh, I'm a writer of science fiction and fantasy. Um, most people know me uh, for either the Fairyland series, uh, Space Opera, or Deathless. I've also written a number of tie-in uh, works, including Mass Effect Annihilation. Uh, so I may have played Mass Effect a time or two. Um, I've won a bunch of awards. I also have been watching Babylon 5 longer than I've been publishing professionally. Let's 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 put it that way. Um and uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a big dork uh, uh, about all of my, my little media fandoms that never let me come on a podcast to rave about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. what we're here for. <laughs> we're, this, is, this is early June, just for, for listener context. Um, about 12 hours after um, Mass Effect Legendary Edition unlocked, I, I, chap- I typed into our group chat, we're going to have to do an episode <laughs> just to scream it into the void. So we don't have to plague our listeners with like 30 second spurts through 10 episodes um, of our usual coverage. And we thought, Hey, let's bring on somebody who's actually written a mass effect book that I have that I have. I think where we want to start this evening is where all of us come from with mass effect. Much of my power has been taken from me when I don't have a, a lengthy summary to uh, rant about. I have played, bought and played the first hour of every Mass Effect, including <laughs> the Legendary Edition, because all my friends were playing them. And then when Legendary Edition came out, I swore to Justin that I would play it so that we could talk about kissing aliens. And then I work. And then, work. <laughs> and yeah, then you and had then to I work like 90 hours a week. Hours a week. Yeah. Uh, so I played the first hour of the first one and then the first hour of the second one. And uh, my pattern is firmly established, uh, which I suppose is in keeping with Mass Effect, as I'm told that that's how you play Mass Effect. You play it the same way you play every time. So I guess I'm just doing it right. You always swear to yourself that, like, this time I'm going to make different romance decisions. And then you just end up with Liara again. I didn't. I don't end up with Liara. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get into into our choices. (laughs) 
But then there, but then it's that just, said, I, my, my phone is named Liara. <laughs> Beautiful. So I guess I do end up with her one way or another. I at least played through Mass Effect 1 and 2 kind of substantially after the two of them came out, but before 3 came out, and then played 3, like, you know, got it and, like, binged it on release day and, like, finished it in, like, 36 hours and then, like, sat there in front of the computer, like, being like, what the hell just happened? My husband got me into it. It wasn't my husband at the time. Um, I, I want to say it was... 2015, maybe? 2014, 2015? I literally was moping around going, oh, I'm in such a gaming rut. I wish I could play a game that made me feel like the old Final Fantasy games used to make me feel. And my husband was like, have you met Mass Effect? Uh, I happen to know you have the first Mass Effect game sitting in your cabinet, uh, and you've never touched it, so you should sit down and play this game. And uh, I will say he, w- he was very uh, kind and kind of, uh, you know, pointed out what DLC was worthwhile and what wasn't because he's a big fan of it um, and like kept me from making any drastically wrong <laughs> choices. <laughs> uh, but um, I played through all three games in, I, I mean, I probably I was procrastinating on a novel. I'm not going to lie, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I um, but look at what's come from it. Right. Uh, so I, I just was obsessed with it and, and played through uh, pretty constantly. And the way he originally sold it to me is kind of the way that I sell it to other people, because when I love something, I really evangelize about it. Uh, I annoy the hell out of everybody I know until they take part in Eurovision or Mass Effect or whatever it is I'm on about. Um, <laughs> so uh, he said, it's basically, feelings in space it's space feelings like the the deal the final dlc is just a dinner party with your friends and i was like okay you know i'll i'll give that a shot um and uh and yeah um all these years later i wrote a book uh and um and it's it's still my favorite video game of all time excellent we're going to get back to the book because (laughs) questions about that yeah as for myself i i remember owning the first Mass Effect, but, like, something with the, the the interface in the first one initially just bounced right off of me. I don't remember why. I think it was because just, like, high school me was not very into cover-based shooters. Mm. Then, like, a couple years later in college, Mass Effect 2 came out, and I had, like, three friends who were like, you just need to play this game so you know what we're talking about. So we know, you know what we're talking about, and you just you cannot be left out of these conversations. And I was like, fine, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> and then I got it. And then I was like, okay, no, I get it. It's, it's, I love this. It's perfect. I didn't play three when it came out because I was see previous statement broke college student with no money until like two years after it came out. I haven't played the Citadel DLC, which I'm like, was just something I missed. And it's like, and now it's back. And I'm looking forward to getting to it when I get to Mass Effect 3. But I've never, I'm like... It's really good. What did I miss? A lot. It's great. Yeah, I think, you, I think you'll really enjoy it. Oh, no. I'm going, I'm, this is this is going to be the thing that makes me cry about Mass Effect, isn't it? I, I mean, I, I uh, yeah. Yes, though how much you cry will depend on your romantic choices, I think. Okay, okay, okay. Interesting. I will say that I that Andromeda uh, is, is I I am an I am an Andromeda stan. I think it's a it's not the best game, but I really enjoy it and what it tries to do. I've got Andromeda on my PlayStation. I just have not played it yet because I have been distracted by other games. Um. So, Kat, 
how does how do you, how do you get yourself seated to write a book in your favorite universe? <laughs> you know, uh, you obnoxiously evangelize to everyone you know uh, about the things you like. I was at the World Fantasy Convention, and I was obnoxiously evangelizing to a group of my friends in the bar about Have you played Mass Effect? It's the greatest thing. Uh, have you heard the good news? Mass Effect is here to raise and bless us all, uh, and. My friend, who is who is an agent, but not my agent, uh, said, you know, the editor who does all the tie-in books is right over there. And I said, oh, cool. Uh, and he said, all right, I'm going to be your agent for five minutes. Uh, and he walked me over uh, to this editor and uh, said, show him your phone lock screen. Because I had my femship on my phone lock screen, <laughs> uh, and in fact, they were they were still trying to find a writer for the third book in the um, Mass Effect Andromeda tie-in series. Uh, and K. Jemison was doing the second one, um, and uh, the first one they already had locked in with two writers as well. Uh, and so uh, I. They, they didn't. I I had really not written very much. What year is this? I'd really only written Radiance as far as novel-length science fiction. And I understand why, if you read Radiance, you might not automatically think uh, military space science fiction, pew, 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 uh, <laughs> for, this, for this writer. So they asked me to send them um, a sample that like showed I could do that sort of thing. And it just so happened that I had written a short story that was inspired by a teeny little flavor text buried deep in Mass Effect on some random planet that you can't even land on. It just has resources. Um, but it mentions psychic lions. And uh, so I wrote a book called, or I wrote a story called Planet Lion um, that had been had been quite well received. And I'm very proud of it. Uh, and I sent it to them. And it is that. It is military science fiction. Uh, but, you know, from the point of view of a, a group of lions that were infected with... Um, uh, military tech left over from a war there and like involuntarily psychically linked by um, basically heads up display battle tech um, and how and how they kind of evolved uh, once they they were inflicted with this. Um, and so they hired me and uh, I spent the next two years finding out what it was like uh, to write a book that you don't necessarily have control over major aspects of, but I was very, very lucky. I was so lucky. Um, and my agent, my, my actual agent didn't want me to do it at all. He was like, you know, like these things don't pay very well. You could just write more of your own original stuff and, and we'll be better off. And I was like, but I want to, it's my favorite. Uh, and so I, we had our first meeting and like, it really, it's, I was so lucky. Like what they told me they wanted to do is what I would have wanted to do anyway. They said, we want, we're not using, any of the non-council races in Mass Effect Andromeda, so we want you to write a book about the arc that has all of them on it. And I was like, I have been blessed by heaven because that is what I love. I love the Elcor. My literally, my car's license plate said Elcor at the time. Uh, like I, I know <laughs> I, I, like, when I say I'm a dork about this, like it is intense. Um, and uh, yeah, so they gave me a they gave me a list of species that I could use. And it's everybody I would have wanted to use. And I was like, am I cool to have no humans? And they said, yep, you're good. Uh, I was like, this is awesome. Um, so I got to do what I would have wanted to do, which was really, really exciting. And they said like, Elcor, all yours. We're not, we're not using them uh, for a while. So 
knock yourself out. But it did mean I had a lot of species where there was not that much in canon about them. So we had to go back and forth a lot with what I could say. And especially since it was a medical thriller, it's, it's, oh God, in 2021, uh, it hits different, but it's a virus that gets loose on a ship in space. It's a locked room mystery, you know, featuring a brain eating virus. Um, and like doing a medical thriller when you can't really say what a volus looks like inside their suit is interesting. <laughs> Can't really say what Aquarian looks like inside their suit either. Uh, because, you know, it seemed like they, they kind of wanted to hold that back for the possibility of, of future games. Can't really say that either. So there was a lot um, that I got to make up. I got to like create cultures uh, and things, you know, that hadn't been mentioned in the games. I got to do a little bit of anatomy work because eventually we do have to have an autopsy on somebody. Um, and uh, it was really, really cool to get to contribute so much um, to the canon uh, that, that I really, I, I would have, I would have written anything. You know, if they told me I had to use humans, then I would have used humans. But it's exactly what I would have wanted to write. Okay, that agent at the bar is like the best wingman in the history oh, of mankind. His name's <laughs> Connor Goldsmith, and he was my wingman for that night. Oh, I, <laughs> Connor does an X-Men podcast. Uh, I'm sure he does. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We've, uh, Connor and I have known each other since uh, Worldcon Spokane. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was very kind because, again, he is not my agent. He got no commission from it. Uh, he was just he was just doing me a solid. I that just proves how small of a world sci fi fantasy publishing is. <laughs> uh, that's that that is also true. Well, that sounds awesome, and it is definitely on my to read list for the summer now. I'm very proud of it. Like part of the reason I wanted to do it is that I thought it would be interesting to write a book where nobody really cared how pretty a sentence I could make like that that was not the relevant thing you know I write I write very pretty sentences normally and uh, I, I do complicated structures and uh, I love all that and it's it's a big part of sort of my passion in writing and that none of that matters when you're writing you know a video game tie-in novel that's mostly about <laughs> you know, uh, space violence. Um, so, uh, I thought that it would basically, I'd be getting paid to take a class in writing commercial fiction. And, you know, can I do that? Can I, can I write a book that is, is plot driven? Um, that is, is all of the things that doodly military science fiction is, and can I still communicate what I think is important about literature through that? Um, you know, I, I limited myself to like one metaphor a page, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I had look. I had a lot of fun with it, um, but it was it was definitely really interesting to to have those parameters. It's probably going to be on like my twenty twenty three reading list when I don't have to think about uh, epidemics uh, uh, like constantly. Yeah, it's um, it's a little rough. I gotta say, <laughs> didn't know. Yeah, that but I mean, epidemic. I, and for the, for research for the show, I did like I, I did like a quick skim of like the of like wiki pages and branching stuff, and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. This is quarians. Hell yeah! Of course, the quarians would build an like would be majorly involved in building an arc. Yeah, well, and like I mean, I spent a lot of time designing a virus. <sighs> And boy, when 2020 hit, I was like, I wish I did not know what I know, because I didn't know that stuff before I wrote that book. I knew <laughs> some of it, but like I, I didn't the nitty gritty. And it's based on measles. Like that's kind of the um, the the core uh, sample virus. And uh, 
I mean, everyone else learned what an R naught number was in 2020. I knew that. <laughs> I knew that very well, uh, which gave me a lot more anxiety than I really needed to have that year. Next thing on my list of things I want to I want to go around with is what do you have a do you have a favorite class for your shepherd and on a scale of like paragon of paragons to renegade for life how how far like where is your usual shepherd lie on all those uh, I can go first. I always play Femship. Um, I, that I'm never tempted to change. I have no interest in playing Dudeship. Uh, and I am uh, Paragon of Paragons, though I will slap somebody in the face at some point. Like, I'll do a Paragon. I'll do a Renegade <laughs> Interrupt occasionally, as long as I'm already maxed out. And uh, I, 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 like, what you were saying, Jude, in the beginning about how you always play the same way, I mean, it's kind of true. I always think, like, this time I'm going to make different choices. Uh, like, you know, I don't, I, I've already beaten the game, so there's no pride there. Like, if I'm, if I don't max out Pen- Paragon or Renegade, like, it'll be fine. And then I can't hurt my friends. Like, I can't do it. I love yeah. them and I want them to be happy and safe. And I can't hurt them. So I can never bring myself to do it. But I almost always play adept because, uh, look, uh, whenever my gameplay style is usually, is there some way that I can do magic at it until it explodes? Like, uh, I play a lot of mono red in uh, Magic the Gathering. Like, <laughs> this is kind of my thing. I just, I want it to be pretty and sparkly and then violently explode. I also always play as Femshep. I've been I've been sort of tempted to play as Dudeshep for the later games, like once Mark Mears' voice acting kind of levels out a little bit. So this time around, I usually so I usually play an engineer, um, and this time around, I am doing something different. I'm playing a Vanguard. Mm. Um, I'm doing the exact same thing right now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and okay, so I, I tend to play characters in such games that are kind of like built around some sort of character from something else. So my my traditional femship has been Sam Shepard based off of Sam Carter from Stargate. However, this time I'm doing Susan Shepard, <laughs> who is based off of Ivanova. <laughs> and and thus I've I've ended up choosing like about 75% Paragon and about 25% Renegade. I was going to say, I, I don't know if you can accurately measure these things off an hour of gameplay. <laughs> I, I I think I kind of split down the middle whenever there was a chance because I picked a lot of like, I'm not like verbally confrontational in these kinds of games. Like, I, I don't find any particular joy in like being the, the edgelord aggressive in, in the conversation trees. But I also have very little patience sometimes. So I will absolutely like cut through a conversation if I can just like do that. Uh, so I feel like that's where that's why I don't hew very close to Paragon or in similar games. I end up in the same place. And then I pick the one I'm forgetting the, the name for it, but the one where you get to shoot guns and do magic, uh, which will come as no surprise for anyone that's ever seen my uh, playtime on Destiny. If you let me shoot a gun and do space magic at the same time, I'm in my happy. I'm going to guess you're doing Vanguard as well. Yeah. I think that sounds right. It's a solid class. I played Engineer or I played, I think I played Soldier my first time, uh, like through the games, um, just because I liked the versatility of choosing which gun you get to pew pew someone with. Um, 
And then, like, more, like, when I played it later on, I did engineer more because I like I liked the, the powers. But, um, yeah, I'm doing Vanguard this time, and let me tell you, Charge is a lot of fucking fun. <laughs> 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 it's like, ooh, I've just got a nice shotgun now. I'm just gonna boop into people and, uh, stuff full of, uh, thermal clips. Well, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about all the classes is, is, you know, you can, it's not like you don't get to use guns if you're an attack. You do do still get to use guns, but it really affects what your party is. Um, because obviously as an adept, I don't really need Liara. I don't, I don't need the, the major biotics because that's the role I'm playing. So like the, my, my loadout and my, my companions are going to be, uh, different depending on, uh, my class. And I, I usually ended up with, you know, uh, Garrus as a sniper and, and somebody else as a tank Rex in the beginning and, grunt later on uh to to fill that out and so because you get you know background dialogue from your party and your squad and everything um it really can change fundamentally the game you're playing uh to to change your class yeah and that's you know i don't i i also don't necessarily always go for a high difficulty setting just because i like being able to put together just whoever i want in a team um and not care about balance at all and have you know the bonkers conversations that you get from throwing together like really random squad mates and i mean we have we haven't mentioned that like boy it really is similar to babylon 5 in a lot of ways um <laughs> i don't really think i yeah, lost that i don't until the remaster of v5 came out and i turned it on at hbo and i went oh like this is i Oh, this is a lot. <laughs> this is very Mass Effect, and I mean it's it's only fair game because I think we talked about this on the last one that like Picard completely rips off Mass Effect in every way, shape, and form. Uh, so I, you know, I guess it's all all all's fair in uh, in lo- space love and space war. But um, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's crazy uh, how how many similarities there are. Like the shadows and the reapers are are just so similar. Uh, and I, I did not realize to what extent Picard borrowed from Mass Effect until I started re- replaying uh, Mass Effect One for the Legendary. I was just like, "Oh, it's just frame for frame." Okay. Yep, it's exactly the same. They, cla- uh, you know, Michael Chabon claims to have never played Mass Effect, and I find that super hard to believe. I mean, uh, there's. <laughs> There's a beacon. Yeah, I get. Somebody watched at least a compilation on YouTube of the the cutscenes because, like, there's no way it's by accident. And and as I pointed out before, like, Star Trek's never used organics versus synths. That's not the Star Trek terminology. We don't we don't do that. That's that's not that's not the Star Trek word. That's that's exactly the terminology of Mass Effect. You know, the creature coming in at the end from outside the galaxy is clearly a Reaper. Uh, downloading the visions into your head is like the first thing that happens in, in Mass Effect. It's um, it's a lot. Uh, it's, especially, it's, especially with the visions being like impossible to actually parse and just like really mm-hmm. disturbing. Yep. And having <laughs> a second person to telepathically sort them out for you. Yep. It's basically Captain Jean-Luc Shepard. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's I feel very much better strange. equipped to uh, participate in this conversation then, because I watched Picard, and I enjoyed Picard's. I watched Picard, uh, so I feel qualified to uh, to comment on, on, on Mass Effect. 
more now. I like the episode where they go to Ilium. I mean, the casino world. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, it really is. It's insane how similar it is. Who's the, uh, who is the, the Riker of Mass Effect then? Oh, Garrus. There is no Shepard without Vicarian? Well, no, no, no. Like in, in like the, the setting, like in the setting of, of where Picard is, like, you know, the, the old friend who's sort of moved to retirement life. It's, uh, it's Captain, uh, Anderson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. Like, or at least their narrative roles. But no, the best bro, that's Garrus. Yeah, Space Bro is Garrus, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, we talked about uh, Liara being everyone's romantic choice. Look, I mean, with Femshep, like, Garrus is by far and away the most popular romantic choice. <laughs> nope, not for me. He's my bro and uh, never crossed the streams. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, no, uh, I think that, that Garrus very much plays the Riker role of, you know, he's your number one. And, and uh, you know, you're, you're, you're in your adventures together and he'll always have your back and, um, he's maybe, uh, with the whole archangel thing, like he's maybe a little more loosey goosey with the morals than, uh, than Paragon Shepard is, but, um, but he's your guy. Interacting with him as a Paragon Shepard is so interesting because he really like, he like listens to Paragon Shepard and like, will kind of change his views. Like, especially in Mass Effect 1 where Garrus is like, why don't we just murder them? And you're like, how about we not do that? And he's like, but why? Shepard gives a reasonable explanation. He's like, that's a good point, Shepard. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the joys of Mass Effect that like, yeah. everything does change depending on even tiny choices that you make and tiny dialogue choices you make. And it's why people get so attached to it. And it's it, you feel very... Even though it's Commander Shepard, not you, you know, the universal you of video games, you feel very implicated in, in everything, you know. Yeah. Did you save the Rachnia? Did you not? Um, you know, the, what happens? I mean, it's, it's hard to talk about this without spoilers, in part because you don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't played it, but also because everybody fundamentally played a different game. And everyone is very attached to their choices in the game. And when you look up sort of what the common choices were, I was shocked. Because, like, from... When I met Thane, I was like, oh, every uh, everybody must pick Thane. Nope, no one picks Thane. Uh, apparently, I can have him all to myself because uh, no one else likes him. But he brought books, like his 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 cargo manifest, like his his special weight cargo. He brought books, paper books. He's my man. Um, but when it comes to like the ending choice, I was so sure that what I chose for the ending was what everyone would choose, because to me it seemed the most natural conclusion of the game. The other thing that Mass Effect takes a lot from is the Foundation series. Um, like Absolutely. The, the end of of the of the you know core six books of Foundation uh, with Galaxia and everything is synthesis. Like that's it. That's the ending. And so I would I was so sure that that's what everyone would pick. And again, no one picked that. It is the least popular choice. Uh, and so it, it's it's very interesting to me how much people take personally the path that they took through the game um, and who they who they chose to develop relationships with and, and the outcomes that they uh, that they chose. Um, so it's it's fascinating. All of that truly is fascinating. Uh, and, you know, with Picard and, and it's Picard's not the only one. I mean, there's just been a lot. Mass Effect clearly kind of has been in the back of a lot of contemporary screenwriters' minds. Um, and it's because it just seems like playing a movie. It's that good. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially once you get to Mass Effect 2, they they figured out that, like, maybe we don't need a lot of, like, that open-world roaming with the car that you can't really drive. <laughs> and maybe yeah, we should just the lean Mako? In. Oh, God, that fucking I love, car. I love that trash oh, bag of a car. That is a... My, my, my first car I ever owned was significantly better than the Mako. And my first car was a 72 Super Beetle where the first time I tried to put the seat back, it came off in my hands. (laughs) (laughs) But did it have a turret? I mean, every car has a turret if you believe in yourself. (laughs) (laughs) That's what a sunroof is. (laughs) My, my, um, My favorite Mako trick is if you boost and then jump, just right off of off of like a bump you can flip the whole thing yeah i mean mass effect 2 is it, it it's as close to a perfect game i think as you're really gonna get and they did realize that like the value add like what what mass effect really has is your relationship with these other characters and i mean i remember like pulling up the second game right after i finished the first game because i was obsessed uh and just being like i'm sorry where's all my friends who are these fucking people i don't want to talk to these idiots like where's 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 my crew where's my people where's my blue boo because i was all about liara in the first game uh and my husband God bless him, said nothing, said not a word. Even when I said, <laughs> one of them's named Jack, I'm sure that's just yet another short-haired brunette dude bro space marine, whatever. I'm not really interested in that. Oh, Jack's amazing. Uh, she is not that at all. Um, she is brunette, I think. But um, she has a shaved head, so it's hard to tell. But yeah, so you you know, by the end of Mass Effect 2, you're like, what original crew? I mean, you get to have your original crew back, but the the new characters are just really spectacular and wonderful. And there's so much, so much in that game. Um, and uh, I really, I mean, uh, people complain a lot about Mass Effect 3, and, and I'm not saying it doesn't have flaws. And certainly I played it after the ending had been extended to make it a little bit better. So I never really had too much trouble with the ending. But I do think the ending coming down to three choices just misunderstands that the the whole game is the ending. Um, You know, the Leviathan DLC is just like one of the coolest things in the whole game. And that's in Mass Effect 3. Um, It shouldn't, it shouldn't have been DLC. That should definitely be part of the game. It's literally the origin of the Reapers and you had to pay $9.99 to find out. Yeah. But but like it's the whole, the whole of Mass Effect 3 is a coda uh, to the series. And it's really, it's really very beautiful. The, the whole thing with Mass Effect Two, where they lean into it's about it's about the it's about the squad, it's about the relationships. Mm-hmm. The first time I played Mass Effect Two, and you're on Omega, and like you don't know who this archangel dude is, and it's the best, it's so great, and the re- <laughs> like and the reveal, like I first of all like I, the the voice actor just like his voice drops half an octave between games and. Oh man, that is the that like it, it's Mass Effect One. Garrus is like you're, you're cute. Mass Effect Two is oh no, I get it now. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's, it's two a.m. I'm like my man, he's back. Uh, <laughs> my and, son, uh, my son has this. He has a little baby doll that he really likes. And he carries it around, and takes care of it, and uh, he had heard earlier in the day me talk about my coffee mug, which has Garrus's face on it. And so he named his little baby doll with the rosebuds on her onesie Garrus. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. 
I think my favorite part of the Garrus romance, though, is um, when the Salarian doctor takes you aside and is like, Shepard, don't swallow. <laughs> yes, basically. <laughs> Which we is- had a discussion on this earlier today. When we were, when we were comparing Bab 5 to Mass Effect, or Babylon 5, like, we find out that humans thought Centauri were, like, were related for a very long time. Which I, would have been just. <laughs> I have Go problems ahead. with this. I got very angry about this on Twitter. Um, I don't buy it either, uh, June. <laughs> so, some uh, friend of the show, Scott Paladin, tweeted a, a very good pun uh, about uh, uh, horny on main gauche. Uh, and I turned that into a joke about uh, Centauri porn because, as we all know, Centauri dueling clubs are just sex clubs. Um, I I swear I'm getting to the point here. Um, it led me to consider the the idea that like what is Centauri porn? Like we were talking about weapons manuals, all these new new dueling all these dueling manuals that have come out of the Middle Ages, and they could be pretty snappy. There's some stuff going on there, and it made me wonder. Do the Centauri have porn? And the obvious answer was yes. It's called media. Hmm. Like the better question is, do they have anything that's not porn? Like I'm trying to imagine like a a sitcom, a Centauri sitcom where somebody doesn't just whip their their junk out like every every eight minutes for for the comedic beat. I strongly believe that they would not. Now, maybe there's some shades of gray in there. But my point ultimately was that this makes that conversation between Garibaldi and Londo at the start of the season where Garibaldi is like, we thought you were, you know, we didn't know for sure that we weren't related to you until we got some of your DNA. And I'm just like, hold the truck up, Baldy. You're telling me that you guys, that A, nobody tried to fuck a Centauri and nobody like, I don't know, sat on public transportation and saw... I can't sit on Bart and not see yeah. somebody watching porn. You're telling me that the that Londo Malari never sat in like a public place and watched Centauri porn on his on his hand terminal? No, I I am 100% sure that the very significant differences between human and Centauri biology were real obvious within I don't know, 2 weeks. I, I completely agree. Uh, I, I don't buy it at all. It was one, yeah. one of the things in my book, Space Opera, like there's a line that's, um, uh, if aliens ever do turn out to be real, there'll be one line to fight them and one line to fuck them and the latter will be longer by a mile. Uh, there's <laughs> no way that humans aren't lo- 100% down to clown uh, as soon as there are uh, yeah. aliens around. It's ridiculous. And and that's one of the things I like about Mass Effect, that it doesn't shy away from, you know, the the galaxy being kind of a grotty place where all kinds of people are screwing and and doing drugs and and being generally weird and shady and into everything uh and i mean i understand that there is a huge difference between even a triple a video game and uh you know airing on network television in the mid 90s (laughs) but uh i do think that if we're going to go as far as to talk about the centauri dicks uh we can talk about the fact that that someone was all about them immediately. Yeah. No, and, and B5 is is not it's it's reason and it, even putting aside if I it, you know taking stepping out of the bit for like a, just a half a second even <laughs> if you put aside the 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 bit Babylon 5 is pretty horny like even without 
the jokes, it's pretty horny by any non prestige TV era TV. There's all, I mean, there's a lot of people on that show trying to and successfully getting laid compared to like anything Marvel, like we, like we were talking about today, Justin, um, Anything Marvel's putting on Scream. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, We're doing our best over here in the fan the fiction trenches. diagram of the connected bedrooms. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're right. But I do think Babylon 5 is a little cagey about cross-species sex. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the species kind of take the Ashley Williams uh, tack of of being, a you know, at least low-key space racist and not not being mm-hmm. that into uh, other species. So Except for Jakar. Of, uh, yeah. Except for Jakar, because everybody Jakar wants Jakar. Well, yeah, I mean, do you not? Everybody, it's, <laughs> everybody does. It's the universal pairing. Yeah. But um, he's, he's like the O negative of... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah... Um, most of the 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 banging is uh, is is within a species and uh, yeah. very much in Mass Effect. Though I mean, I suppose you could bang Ashley or Caden. I don't I don't know why you would, but I guess um, there's probably people who do. Yeah, I mean Ashley Ashley just has a permanent uh, vacation home on Vermeer in one oh, of my saves. <laughs> I I left her so fast. <laughs> I was like, see you, bitch. Bye, Felicia. I'm out. Uh, enjoy, enjoy this nuclear inferno. Uh, do I have a choice to never hear your voice again? Oh, I'm taking it immediately. Like, Kato <laughs> actually grows up and he gets, like, he, yeah. he, he, he gets he gets to overcome his trauma and he gets to, like, become a specter and, like, reclaim some of that. Ashley, uh, <laughs> I mean, Caden's biggest sin is he like kind of jumps the gun a little bit. If you're femshep yeah. and you're like remotely nice to him, he's like, "We're dating forever." Uh, <laughs> Ashley is space Trump. Like, yeah. she's terrible. I probably like if if like if somebody like like dropped a mod on there that's like, okay, all of the all the romance options are by like I'd probably consider Caden with with like M like dude Shep. But that's yeah. Uh, just because. Even like, so, I, if you if you're looking yeah. for a lunk, I think James probably is 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 a. Uh... It's just fine for yeah. that. I mean, like in, in Mass Effect Three, I do regret my first playthrough. I do regret that I chose Samantha because I was so excited to have a a female option. Uh, and I mean, Liara is, but she isn't. They kind of danced around that. Um, I regret it so much. She sucks. Uh, Samantha is just the worst pairing, and she uh, just immediately. I guess it, it, it's very stereotypical of lesbians. She just wants to move in instantly, uh, and like all of these friends you've had for two games, she like talks like she has some kind of ownership over you. When like, girl, you just got here. Nobody knows who you are. So my my canon with Citadel, uh, my head canon with Citadel DLC is that like we broke up right before that dinner party, uh, and it's just super <laughs> awkward because we haven't told anybody yet, and that's why she's such a passive aggressive be through the whole party uh but no i i that was one of the reasons i i did my first rerun throughs i'm like i don't want mm-mm. I, I, <laughs> I i i demand i demand a better lesbian option it seems, yeah i given the popularity of mass effect it's shocking to me that nobody has said has tried to just like staple a a full-on dating sim to an action game mm. i mean it's kind of what it was I mean, yeah, that's that feels very much like what worked about Mass Effect was that it. I mean, obviously, there's a lot going on there, but the thing that that Mass Effect has that no no other game had were, were mm-hmm. all those relationships. 
Like you had games where your where dialogue trees mattered. That was every goddamn Bioware game. <laughs> and you had games with guns and space magic and stuff. But those relationships, like those were those seem to really be like the heart of what made those games work. And there's already a booming industry that makes engines for that kind of uh, a mechanic for delivering that kind of engagement. And it's just I I I remember thinking, hearing all my friends talk about Mass Effect 2, thinking, how is it nobody has has profit like tried to profit? Maybe they did, and I just didn't notice, and they didn't work. But it seemed wild to me that nobody went out there and just tried to do like Mass Effect, except more dating and a little bit less guns. I would play that game. Yeah, I don't know. Well, there's there's still time. I would I would definitely play that game. And I liked that you could screw it up, and then that person is no longer an option because. You you weren't smooth enough, or you said something rude, or or you did something wrong, and uh, they're not interested anymore because that's very much like real life. I think that you know uh, it's not the not the worst primer for teens to play to like learn that you actually <laughs> can alienate people, and that's it. There's no there's no going back on it, and all of that stuff really is a huge part. You're right of, of what what makes people feel really attached to the game. Um, and it's not necessarily just about like, oh, you get the sex cutscene at the end. It's 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 building those relationships and maintaining those relationships and and uh, and where they go. And it's really mm-hmm. great. Yeah, on my on my Mass Effect two playthrough, like right now, like like when you can you can flirt with Kelly in the game, and it's like Ugh. it's fun. Like it, it's just like oh hey, it's a it's a different interaction because it's not like it's not like the big romance. It's just like oh hey, you can have this funky thing with a crew member and HR nightmare Kelly. Is. Oh yeah. HR <laughs> nightmare. But, but this is, but this is also like space opera, like, yeah. like psychologist in Babylon five, HR doesn't exist in space. Yeah. No, Kelly, Kelly needs to zip it, feed my fish. That's it. <laughs> Oh, this is this is one of the reasons why I never end up romancing Caden specifically because I'm like Shepard, you're like you're his commanding officer. No, no, this yeah, is yeah, no, this is terrible. This is a terrible idea. Because like at least at least Liara is like she's part of the team, but she's you know not directly <laughs> under Shepard. And she's like, a contractor. Yeah, she's an outside hire. Like she's an c- outside contractor. She's a freelancer. She is not in your direct chain of command. Exactly. And oh my god, can we talk about how Asari and Minbari are even rhymes? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, like I think we, I think we discussed so this on our last ridiculous. time, but just like pairing the races, like yeah, you can just draw lines from like Asari or just the Minbari, just as like as the 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 Technicolor alien ladies, yeah. from Star Trek. The Narn of the Krogan. Oh yeah, the Narn, the Narn of the Krogan. Mm-hmm. The the Turians and the Solarians sort of just those map to the Centauri real easily. Yeah, different ways, but they 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 sort of form that hybrid, and it's just like, and oh, of course, you've also got like the jump gates and the mass relays. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gosh, yep. I mean that whole long order and chaos monologue from our buddy Justin is is just so very similar to our little star child friend uh at the end it's uh hmm it's it really the, the major difference is that there's no true AI in Babylon 5 as far as I recall yeah whereas that's where a, a lot of Mass Effect uh, revolves around but I think it was unclear just how much it did revolve around that until the third game um possibly unclear to the writers as well uh <laughs> But yeah, I mean that's kind of the major difference, and the the psionics kind of take the place of that 
narrative mm-hmm. function uh, in, in Babylon 5. Uh, but everything else is just, yikes, it's really similar. But, you know, homage, I suppose. Yeah, I wonder what the under what the sort of behind the scenes connective tissue there is when you when you see these kinds of things where you have two properties with seemingly obvious connections and you wonder how did that happen? Is it somebody that watched a lot of Babylon 5 and just didn't notice they were ripping it off when they wrote Mass Effect or was it somebody making intentional homages? I'm always curious how that's how that goes down in in the writing room i i if i had to guess i would think that it was more subconscious by the mass effect writers than not because i mean babylon 5 was a lot more niche back then it just was uh and i i i find it much easier to believe that the majority of the mass effect writers you know if they had seen babylon 5 had kind of not remembered a lot of it and it just kind Mm -hmm. of came out then i find it Easy to believe that the Picard writers hadn't played literally what was once the most popular video game in the, world, yeah. like in the country. Mass Effect was like Mass Effect, can't, like it's not an indie game. Was like it was like set, like that was like seven years after B five went off the air. So I'm like a little bit more. A lot of Mass Effect there. There's just a lot of general homages to a lot of like sci fi tropes. Yeah, and you got to remember these are the same people who made Kotor. Like, yeah. you know, the like they they are they had that's Knights of the Old Republic if anyone listening who doesn't <laughs> isn't like super into acronyms. Um like they they had IP for literally the most popular science fiction franchise there is and uh you know, obviously didn't have IP for Mass Effect and so it's kind of all of the yeah. Star Trek type uh, science fiction, you know, put in the blender and uh, hit frap. Part of, I think, what makes B5 work in a lot of ways is th- that it does leverage a lot of those Star Trekian tropes, but in more, uh, in different ways. JMS is always so proud of how it's not Star Trek, trying to think what's the right way to put that. It's okay. He, he could be a little snooty. He could be a little snooty about the fact that it's like, not Star Trek because of the whole DS9, B5 shenanigans. And I think the way that he sort of turned into, turned a lot of the B5 tropes into the modern sci-fi tropes. I think certainly the idea of like black suited telepaths, that probably was a thing before. I mean, literally one's named Alfred Bester. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He yeah. knew what he was doing. You can't get yeah. too mad at Mass Effect when, like, Babylon yeah. 5 literally rips off Lord of the Rings, too. Like, shamelessly, <laughs> oh, with absolutely well, actually, no I've never heard regret. of <laughs> One of the things we dunk on JMS a bunch for is there's all these quotes in Lurker's Guide about him not actually intentionally ripping off Lord of the Rings. Okay, Boomer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, perfect response. Yeah. Because uh, some of them are, like... The 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 Zaha Doom Rangers with their little jewels. Like, come on, it's ridiculous. Yeah, Yeah, both of those Rangers and Zaha Doom. He both claimed were not direct references to Lord of the Rings, and 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 we definitely don't have uh, shared in the gray turning into shared in the white after falling into a very deep pit. (laughs) 
<laughs> I've literally had people pitch like before I started this. Like I've literally heard people bit, pitch B five to me as like Lord of the Rings in space. So JBS, if you weren't yeah. trying for it, you, you <laughs> did it anyways. But no yeah. one's mad. Come on, you like yeah. no. no it's he, he might as well admit it because no one's mad about it. Yeah, like we're yeah. all nerds, and JMS is a total nerd, and like we all put the things we all put our fandoms in our original creations. We all reference. We all mm-hmm. like that. That is part of the joy of being a writer is that you can make these like deep cut references and like one dude in Peoria gets it. Like that's, that's part of the yeah. excitement of, of, of creating something that is, you know, truly aimed at geekdom and nerddom. There's, it's not a problem. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, there, nobody thinks he didn't read Lord of the Rings for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of the really interesting things about looking at how these properties relate is the everybody, all the writers these days, it's not like, I remember taking criticism classes back in the day and there's a very well-received book right now that is just blowing up the Tolkien academic circles. Some guy went through photos of Tolkien's office and indexes from when he passed that his son made and made a timeline of when Tolkien owned what books hmm. so that they could have like a an idea of what reference, what things he was exposed to at the time. So like he had this Germanic lexicon in his youth, but then he had this one. And then he also read this other one that had this Sumerian reference. And then eventually they're able to connect that maybe he got the idea from of the song of Ina Lindela from having read this article about Sumerian. And like they're able to do these leaps by understanding which what reading he was doing. And that was a thing you could do with a guy that did, you know, in the 30s. You can't do that now because we live in this melting pot of literature and media. And I, I think it's really interesting to try and look at any of these properties in isolation because they're all so interconnected by the 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 genre is so very much uh, a part of each of these properties these days. It's very hard to 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 not have them influencing each other. Uh, if I can put my medievalist hat on for a second. So I, I have a degree in classics and I went to grad school for medieval studies. Uh, and there, th- those are two great tastes that go great together because Tolkien would never have been ashamed to say he was inspired by anything. And he oh, did. Yeah. All, he, he, he had no issue with it. And part of the reason for that is that there's this whole tradition in, in medieval literature called translatio, which uh, obviously translate. But what it specifically referred to was um, taking classical culture, ancient Greece and Rome, and writing it in a way that people in contemporary, your contemporary readers would enjoy. So that is the whole of what the Canterbury Tales are. Um, Almost everything in the Canterbury Tales is a retelling one way or another of uh, a a Roman or Greek uh, text. Um, One of them, uh, the physician's tale, like this is an example. So uh, it's super boring and everyone hates it. And like even in graduate school, everyone will be like, this is the worst one. It's supposed to be the worst one. It is a pastiche of Livy, which is the worst historian, is the most boring historian to read. So even and if you know your Livy, (laughs) even in the in the introduction to the physician's tale, um, like it's it's basically telegraphing from a mile away that I'm going to do a Livy here and we're all going to laugh about how boring and stupid it is because Livy's boring and stupid. (laughs) 
Uh, and everybody, you know, that, that Chaucer was writing for would have understood that at the time and, and, and mm-hmm. deeply appreciated that he was essentially translating one culture to another. And so Tolkien was fully aware of that tradition and fully part of that tradition. So, you know, he would never have been upset if he would never say, well, I've never read the Kalevala uh, and how dare you? Uh, like <laughs> yeah. th- that, th- he would never occur to him to do that because he was fully invested in that tradition and he was writing these old medieval epics in a way that con- his contemporary readers would enjoy. Uh, he is very much the the heir of that uh, that culture. And and I, we are still doing that now. We're all just super cagey about it because uh, people get weird on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but but, but there, yeah. there's no sense in which we're not still retelling stories, that we're not still, uh, you know, translating older cultures, especially in fantasy, to, to newer cultures. And yeah. You know, Babylon Five is 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 a lovely combination of fantasy and science fiction, and I I think that, you know, being sensitive about that speaks more to the sort of sense that fantasy is in some sense inferior to science fiction than it does to any kind of problem with with Babylon Five. Um, mm. You know, there's there's space magic in in Mass Effect. We just call it biotics, and there's space magic in in Babylon 5. Um, But I have always, you know, as a classicist, I've always approached both fantasy and science fiction in that way, Um, that that there are all of these ancient human stories, and it is very, very possible uh, to tell them in a way that they are not boring. One of my my future projects is um, an Antigone in space. Uh, Like this, this is this is part of what we do as as writers. And it's part of what JMS did. And it's part of what Tolkien did. It's okay, JMS, you can just say it. It's fine. Well, nobody's mad. Everyone loves you. <laughs> this concept, though, puts Harrow the Ninth in a whole new light for me. <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah. Oh, yeah. The memes. Yeah. <laughs> That's really good. I mean, yeah, it's and like we, we like, I mean, we see that, like, we even see that a lot in, like, modern things, because, like, I, um, Shiron uh Shiron Zhao uh is doing like her their novel which is like coming out like next year I think which is it's the legend of Wu Zetan but with Mecca. Mm. <laughs> and it's just like every like you know we're 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 pulling these forward we're just making them more accessible to mm. modern audiences and that's how we you know yeah. it's a way we keep our it's a, it's a way we keep our our mythology alive for sure and because there's so much to know now there's just like nobody can know everything in the world and then also know ancient literature from all these different cultures and everything like we we rely on people being able to to perform that act of translation um not not necessarily from language to language but from time to time uh, and of course, in Chaucer's time, classical culture and classical documents was just being rediscovered. So it 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 literally was uh, breaking news, <laughs> you know, yeah. breaking news. These stories are super cool. Uh, and so now, um, you know, it is it, it is memes and and any way in which you can sort of take these old stories and communicate them in a way that anybody gives a shit is a is a small miracle. Well, I and I like that in the context of. Like, you know, that especially in sci-fi, it, fantasy and sci-fi both have this kind of push for anybody new to read the classics. Mm. And I'm not saying that there isn't value to be had in, you know, a number of classic pieces of sci-fi and fantasy, but there should be no need to 
go back that far unless you really want want to, because you can read something that's far more accessible, that's tackling similar things just in a way that's more modern, etc. Yeah, I mean, there's. I think that there's uh, definitely value in knowing what's been done and how it's been done, so that you can make sure that you're not, you know, treading old ground. But uh, you don't have to read anything you don't like. Yeah, and um, there is a lot of real bad old science fiction and fantasy. There's a lot of real bad realism, old <laughs> realism too, and new realism. Yeah, uh, there's just a you know, there's this guy named Theodore Sturgeon. He has a law. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you don't have to read anything that you think is bad. It's probably worth like maybe picking up an academic book about the history of science fiction if you want to make your living as a science fiction writer. But like, if you don't enjoy it, there's, there's no there's prerequisite courses for being a science fiction or a fantasy writer. Uh, you know, you write what's important to you. Yeah, and for and for somebody who would be you know, looking at starting to read science fiction, there's no reason why you'd be like, well, you should start with Asimov, etc. Yeah, well, you know, it's, sure, let's all start with uh, Princess of Mars. It's terrible. Read that, get <laughs> depressed, write nothing. Um, <laughs> like, I just learned that, like, I learned, like, two weeks ago that Princess of Mars is just apparently a dude dreaming, like, falling asleep in a cave and not actually, like, getting transported to Mars and stuff, and it blew my mind. I well, was just like, I've been... I've been <laughs> Not just what the heck is this? I feel that Princess everybody should read the beginning of Princess of Mars and realize that there are no fucking rules because <laughs> this is literally yeah. like is he asleep <laughs> in the cave or is he not? I, it's intentionally amb- amb- ambiguous. But this is literally how John Carter gets to Mars. No fucking joke. First of all, he killed a bunch of Apaches like two seconds before the story starts, and that is a Confederate officer. Ex- yes, yeah. who. Killed a bunch of Apaches. Um, He's six foot two, which is the most masculine height. That is also explicitly (laughs) laid out for you in the first paragraph. Not necessary. Uh, Ed, don't don't need to know that. Um, That's how we know John Carter had a Tinder profile. (laughs) Uh, So he looks up into the night sky, sees the planet Mars. The essential masculinity of Mars calls to the essential masculinity of John Carter. And there is a doodliness transporter and he appears on Mars. That's not a joke. That is a fact. That is what happens. Uh, mm-hmm. It is. There are no rules. <laughs> you can do anything you want. And that's a classic. That's a classic that people still swear by and young people still read. And it is yeah. dumb as <laughs> balls. <laughs> the fact that you would develop a sword fighting culture mm. and not a pants wearing culture <laughs> at the same time is... That's a hard a one choice. for me to swallow. That's Hashtag a, choices. That's a uh, <laughs> suspension of disbelief stretcher for me. Um, yeah, the fact I didn't pick up the first time I read that book that nobody wears clothes. Uh, naive little 11-year-old Jude digging through the uh, Springer Elementary public school library did not pick up on the fact that everybody's buck-ass naked the entire book. Just didn't notice that. Uh, so when I went back and read it as an adult, I was like, it, just, it it makes everything in that book dumber when you consider that he's wearing two belts and a sword <laughs> and just letting everything else hang out. A, a swift a swift jog will solve that masculinity problem for you. Yeah. <laughs> God. No, yeah, but that that's the thing. Up. There's no there's no there's no rules in science fiction. Like hard science fiction, soft science fiction. The foundational texts of science fiction uh, are not very hard science fiction at all. With like once we actually understood science and what other planets are like. Uh, but people still love those things. It's not mm-hmm. It's not about adhering to any one genre. It's about writing something that moves people. And, and 
that's one of the things about Babylon 5. And we discussed it on the last podcast and I read you my little poem about uh how it, it there are there are so many things that shouldn't work about that show and and it's part of why it can be a little difficult to get newer people into it but it is so much more than the sum of its parts and yeah. it comes together into something that's truly powerful and there you know with Mass Effect it's the same thing there's the Mako which sucks uh the first game is just full of these empty rooms like thank you legendary edition like they've solved a lot of these <laughs> issues but you know there's significant problems with the game but it is so much more than the sum of its parts and the way it makes you feel and the way it makes you remember i cried like a baby three goddamn times at a video game like that's not <laughs> nothing and 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 i'm not the only one either the first time you pl- like you know I, I i went full paragon my first time through and then there's the what happens on the citadel at the end of the first game where you can take the paragon choice and convince Saren, like that that was like a huge that was just like a huge thing for me is like a storytelling thing and like like taking the paragon choice and like getting Saren to realize what he's doing and him reasserting control is like on a level with like Vader killing the emperor to redeem himself like on just like a term of a narrative flip that I wasn't like you're not expecting but it feels yeah. good like if you keep if you keep like when you meet him on Vermeyer and you're like trying to convince him, no, you idiot, you're indoctrinated, you dumbass. Yeah. And then <laughs> he realizes that he's like, oh, I've completely fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a real moment for me. It's Morden. Like that's the biggest one for me, which is which is all the way at the end of three. So if you haven't played through to the end of the three, but you know, to any Mass Effect fan, you can just say someone else might have gotten it wrong. Yeah, and like the waterworks will start. It's all I can do not to cry like right now because like it, it's such a moment and it's it's built through the whole uh, the whole game, and it's it's complex and emotional and you know, depending on how you've played the game, that can all come out differently. But it is very hard uh, to to save him. Yeah. Like, something that I think is really, like, endearing about Mass Effect is how, like, there aren't any, like, all of your squad mates, like, are pretty fucked up people. <laughs> like, it, it is, they're, they're like, they're, there's nobody who's actually, like, a good, like, like, a holy good person. You know, if you go, like, Rex has been killing people for 300 years. Yeah. Like, I, Liara, Liara starts off good, then she becomes girl boss CIA. Oh, like, I was so upset. I'm like, why are you being mean to me? Didn't we have something special in my blue boo? Like, why are you doing this? <laughs> and that's why I wouldn't go back to her in the third. I'm like, no, you blew it. <laughs> uh, and like, and like, Garrus, so like, Garrus starts off like he he's a, he's a cop who, like, sees like I get the bad guy who what does it care about collateral damage but you know he gets that journey but everybody's like everybody has these like very big flaws in their character and like the fact that like the game doesn't shy like game never really shies away from that and like you get to see characters be fuck-ups is mm. like that's the most endearing thing that Mass like that the characters in Mass Effect do is they fuck especially, up. Especially especially Rex in yeah. Mass Effect One, where he's yeah. like, "Gosh, somebody should you know stay at home and take care of the other Krogan," and you're like, "It could be you," and he's like, "Fuck no, nah." <laughs> and speaking of names uh, from Babylon Five and Mass Effect, literally Morden. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just spelled slightly differently. <laughs> It's a real common name, though. Like, I know at least a half a dozen Mordens, don't it's you? It's basically the Josh of science fiction, right? 
Uh, so one thing that I wanted to talk about since we've been talking about you know Babylon Five and um, you know in Mass Effect, etc., and kind of comparing things between especially film slash TV and video game. One of the things I love about Mass Effect is how weird the aliens are uh, in a way that would be so difficult to have on um, on TV without extremely good CGI. That you've got the the fucking Hanar, like the floating the floating jellyfish. And they're so good. This one totally agrees. <laughs> or or the um the Elcor also. I love them and like how they, you know, don't have a lot of like emotional affect. So they say they say, you know, what they mean for their affect to be, and it's just fantastic. One of the little jokes in uh there's a lot of Easter eggs in Mass Effect Annihilation for for fans. Um, down to one of the moments everyone loves in Mass Effect is is Morden singing, um, "I am the very model of a scientist Solarian." Um, and so I have a Batarian singing, "I am I am a pirate king," uh, in in Mass Effect Annihilation. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Um, but one of the, the one of the little side kind of throwaway jokes is that uh, there's mention of an Elcor therapist who ha- has created a school of thought where. Um, using Elcor, that that language tag, uh, if you are not Elcor, uh, could actually really help a lot of people in the universe. It really could. Uh, to avoid misunderstandings. So there's like a whole school of psychiatric thought um, based on on importing uh, the Elcor's uh, language quirks to other species. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, heck, we should just put that on business emails. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Annoyed. Per my last email. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think I think that's one of the things that I do enjoy is that like you know we get aliens that do get to be weird and one of the things that I particularly like is I I have a because of gender stuff uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Asari like as a culture and like how like they are an internet based direct democracy <laughs> and, and like and that and that the writing of the game actually cares about the fact of like examining what a species that lives a thousand years does. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's really interesting. Like there is um, the bartender in Eternity on Ilium, who I'm not going to say is Liara's mother, but she definitely is. But like how she talks about like, you know, she's like, I knew it was expected me of as a matriarch, which was to go and lead by people. But people didn't like me when I did that because I was too loud. <laughs> well, and like the Mimbari, uh, you know, you you sort of, you the the kind of, big flaw of the Asari is how secretive they are and that mm-hmm. they do hoard a lot of knowledge and and kind of think of themselves as better than everybody else, but they are kind of better than everybody else. Uh, but part of the reason they're better is because they haven't shared with everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that I do think uh, that, like, that, I, that I had in our notes here, which was how in Babylon 5, humanity has been on the galactic stage for approximately 100 years, and there's still like an up-and-comer. Well, meanwhile... Um, I think it's at Mass Effect 1. It's 26 years after First Contact. Yeah. And is humanity really? is humanity is swinging for the fences. Mm. Um, like so much that they're actually considered a problem. Um, I, I think it's an interesting thing because it's like... It, like, I, I don't blame the Volus when they're like, goddamn humans are bucking for a council seat and like we've been here the whole time and like nothing. Not only have the Volus been there the whole time, they have to share an office on the Citadel with the Elcor. <laughs> like they don't even get their own office. 
Like you have to listen to a lot of, uh, of of side quest talk to get that piece of information, <laughs> but they do. They don't have their own their their emissaries don't have their own space uh, in the office complex. I think that tracks, though. I feel like I think that it, once humans get out into the stars, if we ever do run into other people, we'll certainly a annoy them and b spread like the damn plague everywhere we go. That seems in keeping, but that does blow my mind that. It, it's 26 years after first contact. I somehow missed that on my playthroughs of Mass yeah. Effect. It's something you can like, I think you can easily miss if you're not, if you're not like looking for it. And it's like, the whole thing is that like, unlike where in B5, where everybody's sort of like at a technological, like relatively they're like within like one or two steps on the tech tree within each other. Everybody, like, you know, humanity just got this huge boost from just a random Prothean cache on Mars. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, oh, we figured out how to do this. And like, and we're like, oh yeah, we can build warships now. And <laughs> great. And then the Turians are like, why the fuck are you near a mass relay? No, 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 don't touch that. Don't touch that. Oh, fucking humans. <laughs> yep. I'm, I'm writing this, the sequel to space opera right now and literally writing about this stuff. Uh, Basically, humans can't leave the planet without a buddy uh, <laughs> because they're literally so annoying to everyone. Not necessarily dangerous, just annoying uh, that they need to have a chaperone just to be around civilized people. Like a toddler. I love yeah. that. Did I have a baby between the first book and the second <laughs> book? I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's hard, to, hard to tell. <laughs> I mean, you can't really blame the council at like... Like for being a little bit like humans, you need to cool. You need to cool the brakes here. Like mm. you being too curious has started two wars. And I think that yeah. that's sort of it, it's kind of um, low key under understood that that's part of why nobody ever believes Shepard about anything. Yeah, it's like the dog's talking again. Um, it's it's real concerned about the squirrels outside uh but we're not we don't we don't need to listen we don't need to listen to the dog just because it can talk now (laughs) it's funny my dog's been barking her butt off all day because we're putting a pool up and so the dog's been like extra angry and i just immediately thought that if the dog could suddenly talk and was shouting like invader invader i'd be like shut the fuck up i heard you every time like i don't care and then if it actually Seriously, wasn't we all alien, just want to have dinner you need to stop yeah and then the time it did turn out to be uh, a rogue ai from another dimension i'd be real fucking surprised and the dog would be like yeah i told you man like it was right there with the squirrels i was trying to show you what do you want yeah that's funny ah uh, space you know, <laughs> I, you know, I was like thinking, thinking of like just the Reapers here. Beyond, beyond the fact that they're just big metal cuttlefish, um, <laughs> our last actual real episode of coverage was talking about Zaha Doom, and um, I got into a thing of like I don't like the fact that the shadows don't really have the motivation for the shadows is very. Uh, occluded it's like there there's like we've been playing this game for ten thousand years and we're gonna just keep playing it whereas the reapers have like they have a very specific thing they have a plan it's a dumb plan but they have a plan (laughs) and the plan came from their bosses like they're roombas that got out of control (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, they are they are Roombas that are like all dust must be annihilated, and their like solution to annihilating dust is just annihilating everything. Um, it's a very robot way to think, um, but at the same time, I don't I don't necessarily feel like the shadows don't have a post game plan. Kind of the same yeah. way Sauron doesn't seem to have a post game plan. I've always wondered, like, okay, buddy, all right, let, let's 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 sketch this out. What's your crops plan? Because like everywhere you've taken over is just a burnt out hellhole and you can't grow anything and everybody will still need to eat in whatever version of the universe that you're creating and you're in charge. Like we all still are, we still have to grow things and like ingest and respire. So what's your plan here? And it's the same thing with the shadows, like, ooh, chaos. Okay, but like, but what does that look like? You know, what's our, what's our job in the chaos, in, in the, in the chaos utopia? Like what? What do people what do people do for for fun? Because, you know, if because, you know, if they don't have fun, they're they're pretty much they're going to not do what you want. But what is it that you want? Like, I understand that the, the universe balance, order, chaos, all that. But like, if you win, do you have like an agenda, like a like an agenda book where you have like your little squad goals and uh, your your like actionable <laughs> items off into <laughs> one side and like you know oh this is just sort of the pie in the sky you know brainstorming you know shooting the shit what what could it be like no like bad I just don't use a brainstorm I just I really I really need uh, you know like them to have an assistant that has this kind of organization on deck yeah yeah and Morden really isn't yeah. that person. Morden wants to be that guy so bad, but he's so not. Like he's he's way too committed to his aesthetic of being literally the devil uh, to to actually be doing the doing the work. He's not doing yeah. the grunt work. He's got his more evil Ross Geller thing going on. <laughs> That's really good. I re- I refuse to I refuse to speak Morden's name for the <laughs> the first season of our coverage, and I just called him either Ross Geller or that John Travolta motherfucker. <laughs> And then there's extra crispy Morden, so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, and I do have to say this. Um, Justin's speech on Zaha Doom is not as quite as inspiring or menacing as your first contact with Sovereign in Mass Effect 1. It's because it's just a dude. It's just like, he looks like a dentist. <laughs> I've never heard the Sovereign speech. But if, it's good. if like, two of those sentences... M- work if you put them next to each other then it makes more sense than Justin's speech because Justin's speech (laughs) is just a bunch of ominous one-liners that he's stacked together but that don't make any sense JMS famously has said that by the end of the season he was kind of like running a little rough and I feel like Justin's speech is the epitome of that where each line I can imagine JMS going like yeah that's a that's the ticket that's the winger (laughs) And then he does it, writes another one. Yeah, that's the ticket. That's the winner. And then he just keeps on doing that. And he doesn't like actually go back and read whether if you put them all together, they make sense. Because his speech is just pompous sounding words. It, I get very frustrated by it because you want them to have something beyond like, I'm sure if we tell this guy that we like to, that, you know, a few people, a few species will have to die. Where's your follow-up? Where's, okay, that's your thesis. Let's hear your <laughs> arguments. And he's like, for the good. The greater good. Yeah, <laughs> the greater he's got, good. it's just. 
Well, it's a sovereign speech is very good, but it's also bullshit. Uh, so, oh yeah, like, yeah. like so, it's at least like menacing. It is. It's so menacing. It's like I like I got chills. It's a super menacing speech. But here's the thing about sovereign speech, um, and also I love like Harbinger Sovereign, like the the ominous nouns that Bioware is in love with are, are <laughs> great. Um, and B five is also uh, a bit partial to, but like sovereigns, like you could not possibly understand our motivation. It is beyond your organic brain. Well, but I can because like you just don't <laughs> like organics and you prefer robots. Like that's all it is. Like that's not that's not really so far beyond yeah. the ken of mortal beings. Like you just like uh I mean all of us sort of could understand maybe liking robots a little better than people. People kind of suck. Like I, we we get you, sovereign. Like you don't have to do all this. So it's it's crap. He's he's it is not played out by the rest of the uh series. Whereas you're right, Justin's speech, which whose major problem is it's being delivered by a guy who just looks like your shitty dad. Like it's yeah. just there's no it's just a dude. Like it's not it's not a fame, it's not even a famous actor or anything. It's just like a guy with fluffy hair. Like it's just some dude they got at the bus station. And uh it is just slogans. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it is it. what it is what are is on the bumper stickers that you can't see on the shadows. It's <laughs> <laughs> shadow bumper it's, stickers. That's <laughs> it's like Darwinistic libertarianism. Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Which I just lost a brain cell saying that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, bear yeah. with me for a minute. What if there were no rules? Yeah, yeah, Dad. We've heard it. I we know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited for you to start watching more of season four, Justin, because yeah, season four goes some places yeah. uh, and you haven't even gotten to the, believe it or not, that Morden leaving bits of his skin all over the floor is not like the most unexpectedly weird part of season four. I forgot how gross that I'm was. Great. And there's such weird shit in season four. You're really... In for it. Yeah, no, more than just like a six-year-old with a, with a sunburn. Just wants to kill that <laughs> off leave it everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I have some, I've seen some shit working, working with kids. <laughs> I have a question for, like, this is mostly for Anna and Kat. But if you had, if you got another Mass Effect game, what would you want it to be? Just a dating sim. But <laughs> but one where you could date multiple people. So a big poly dating yes, sim. Yes. I don't want to have to choose. I just want to be able to date everyone. Do you truly think that having written a Mass Effect tie-in book, I don't have a plan for if I get a phone call? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I can ask Zathras to cut this out. <laughs> so that way you don't have to worry about um, it like, being out there. <laughs> uh, I, um, uh, I, 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 I think that there's a lot of uh, potential to be had in, um, if you listen to the star child speech and you know not in the sense of of like i'm about to make this decision so i'm just like trying to understand it but if you go back and listen to it there's some implications of some truly funky stuff and i think that there's a lot of potential um because the problem with mass effect has always been how do you canonize one ending when everyone is so partial to their own so i think that there is a lot of uh, potential in uh, parallel timelines and uh, realities. And uh, I I'd certainly, again, if I ever get a phone call, I, I certainly have I have ideas, call me. Um, 
And uh, I, I, I think that certainly the the dating sim aspect, like everybody loves that. You can't you can't put that aside. Um, but I think that given uh, the controversy of of the Mass Effect ending, you have to deal with that before you can move on to like a, a, a Mass Effect cinematic universe where there's lots of different stories. Uh, you got to make got to make people a little happier. Yeah. Um, with that with that ending. Um, so so Which it yeah. looks like they're trying to do with that trailer they leaked. Or the, the trailer uh, they dropped, does, whatever that it was. It certainly looks interesting. I really love to see a protagonist who wasn't a human, too. Mm. More of a broad look at, like, the day-to-day lives for a bunch of the alien species. Like, what is life like in the Corian fleet, etc. It's one of the things I tried to do with Mass Effect Annihilation is to sort of bring that out a little bit more and and play with, you know, what... What all of these species that that get these very brief moments, like just just what how they see the world, you know what? Okay, so the Hainar have this incredibly uh, top heavy religion, but surely there are Hainar who are atheists. Though surely there are Hainar who don't su- subscribe to that. You know, nobody's they're just monolithic. not preaching on the Presidium. Yeah, and like one of the things that that always pissed me off, I'm like, I can not believe the Drell are all in on their relationship with the Hainar. It's slavery. It sucks. Uh, I cannot believe there are not radical political Drell who are like, F all of these jellyfish. Uh, we do not need to have space TB. Uh, we like, this is the highly advanced medical culture. Like, surely we can fix this. Um, and so I, I really tried to kind of pull in a lot more, you know, quotidian sort of everyday existence in life. Um, virtually everyone's favorite character is an Elcor named Yorick who uh, didn't get cast in Elcor Hamlet um, and is forever, <laughs> forever bitter about it and going to Andromeda, hoping to start Elcor Macbeth and, and be the star that he was always meant to be. Beautiful. <laughs> and, you know, it's that kind of little thing. Like I, I, when I try to explain to people what's so great about Mass Effect, I often mention Elcor Hamlet, because even though that that is a thing you hear on the Citadel, and it's just a little bit of flavor, it's, it is one of the things that makes it feel really very lived in. Um, it's funny. It's funny on its own, all of those little emotional tags before the famous Shakespeare lines. But having culture uh, as part of this giant space opera story, you know, what people are actually doing for fun, what people are interested in when they're not being attacked by Reapers, like that's what makes a world feel lived in. And B5 very much understood that. Yeah. I also love uh, Blasto. Blasto. I was about to say Blasto. Blasto. (laughs) I was like that. That's the that's the greatest thing that anybody's ever <laughs> put into like a codex material is Blasto. Blasto so good, and I would absolutely watch. Like, if if they released a Blasto mini game, I would play the hell out of that. Give me like a little side scroller shoot 'em up uh, of Blasto the Hanar Spectre. Well, and it's funny. You know, years ago I played a lot of Mass Effect multiplayer. Um, the Mass Effect 3 multiplayer, like, I was, like, I had was the great. top rank on, like, not on the leaderboards, but I had, like, all of the ranks. Um, and that was interesting because they kept releasing, like, more and more playable aliens and um, stuff like that. And everybody was, like, 
Release Blasto. Give us Blasto. <laughs> that is one thing that I'm like very sad that like I, I know why they didn't do it, but like I'm sad that they didn't bring the Mass Effect 3 multiplayer into Legendary Edition. Because I've got I've got a like it's not even like playing it on release because they did it, but playing the demo with like my friends in college, like in the in the anticipation for the build-up and just like how fun that was. It was a really fun multiplayer. I game. did not enjoy multiplayer at all because it took a game that I, you know, all my space feelings were out about, and then I got like teabagged by some guy in who's <laughs> playing at two a.m. Like it was not <laughs> fun for me. I did not enjoy it. <laughs> I enjoyed that it was um, very much a multiplayer game where you did not have to have your voice chat on. Mm, that's true. That's true. I shouldn't say some guy. It could have been a girl who teabagged me and laughed at me. <laughs> Did a little dance over my dead body. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so we, we talked a lot about romance, obviously. Kat, who do you romance in Mass Effect? Uh, Liara in the first one. Um, Thane in the second one. Uh, and uh, again, Samantha, I, I mean, I sat there knowing that like this moment is where I can choose to go back to Liara or not, because obviously Thane, uh, you know, dies like a Victorian waif of his wasting lung illness. <laughs> uh, look, just cause you brought books on board doesn't mean you get to do that. Like, no, 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 no. Um, surely, surely we have a cure for space asthma. So, uh, and then I ended up with Samantha for the third one, the first time around. And then I stuck with Liara, um, on my subsequent replays, but she was such a bitch in, in the second one. She was not nice to me. I think she owes me a lot. <laughs> I get to hold the remote. <laughs> I personally end up with Liara in the first one. I generally go with Garrus in the second. And then it's my, my playthroughs for three have been about split between Liara and Garrus. And I do and I do enjoy that if you don't romance Garrus in the third one, he ends up with Tally. I love that. That's really yeah, great. Yeah, that's a good one. And they're very good together. If Tally were an option for Femship, I would have absolutely romanced. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love her so much. That's something that Bioware actually does really like, in my opinion. Something that I something that I like that they do is that like occasionally they'll have like two party members who hook up if you don't romance either. Like in uh, Dragon Age Dragon Age Inquisition, um, Iron Bull and Dorian will start fucking uh, mm. if you don't <laughs> romance either of them, which is um, very good. <laughs> I think people forget how controversial it was that you could have same sex pairings in in Mass Effect Three. Like people got real mad about it and were screaming all over the internet. You know, it was a unfortunately a different time. Uh, and yeah. and even the fact that like you did not nobody was making you not be straight, but still people lost their minds over, over it. Uh, so I, I feel like now it's it's hard to explain to people how angry just having the option dance awkwardly in a nightclub with a member <laughs> of your own gender <laughs> was. Or the equivalents in another species. Yeah. I mean, we could, we could, I think we could go for like a half hour on Asari and gender. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one thing that I wish that they had done for Legendary Edition is I wish that they had basically just turned the romanceable yes flag on for everyone. It would have been a lot of new stuff to animate and write, though. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, not, not for, not for everyone, but like, you know, just because there were, there were always, <laughs> mods where it was one of the easier forms of mods is that you could essentially modify your save file and be like tally romanceable yes 
and the animations wouldn't have necessarily been quite there, but you'd have to drag in people for like new voice lines. Yeah. yeah. Which I guess like part part of the reason you do a remaster is because I mean, like it's it's probably a little bit more cost efficient to remaster a trilogy than make a new trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> I've gone Liara and I've flipped between Garrus and Thane. I think I'm probably going to end up with Garrus in this time around just because just go for that go for that uh Go for that weird, awkward bird man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I'll probably go to Liara, the second one. And I, I will I will state for the record here, um, Lair of the Shadow Broker is like my ideal for what Mass Effect 2 is. Because if you like, if you romance Liara in the first game and then take Garrus with you, it's just Liara and Shepard getting back together and taking Garrus along so that he'll be the most... So, hey, he will have to suffer between them bickering and trying to... Like, they basically just do the Attack of the Clones chase scene with the hover car, except, like, while having a lover's quarrel. One of my favorite bits of Lair of the Shadow Broker is at the very end, you can um, sort of see everybody in your party's media preferences and purchases, if you pay attention, and you can see that... That um, Rex listens to Hemingway audiobooks, and that's one of the funniest things. It's, it's just hilarious to me. And, and Grunt is constantly searching for um, T Rex and Krogan. Like <laughs> to see related. It's, I mean, it's hilarious. Like I can't imagine how much fun that must have been to write. Gosh, yeah, it's got it's got like one of my favorite little bits of the the thing is like where you're trying to break into the Shadow Broker ship and like. Liara's like, I've got this hacking program. It's illegal. It'll probably work. Like, you didn't test it? No? Tell me you tested it, please. <laughs> and then, like, there, and then, like, you have to go through waves of enemies. And it's like, remember when you could just slap Omni Gel on everything and it would be all easy? That it's was like, a yeah, great that line. security yeah. upgrade pissed off a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to recommend uh, for people who are interested in reading Mass Effect Annihilation to listen to the audiobook, which is performed by Tom Taylorson, who's writer Scott from, um, Andromeda, and he does an incredible job. Like you, uh, I said something on Twitter about what did they actually put the Elcor voice effect on him and how cool it was to hear my lines like in the actual Elcor voice. And he said they didn't put an effect on it. Like he just, oh my did gosh, that. he just wow. did it. Like oh. it's really great. It's really really good. I highly recommend. Voice actors are kings. <laughs> yep. I I will absolutely have to check that out. Then thank you for the recommendation. Uh, and. Cat, since we're at the end here, is there is there anything that you want to pitch to the listeners? Yeah, so I have a book coming out on July 20th called The Past is Red, uh, which is a climate change dystopia, but it is the most cheerful and hopeful climate change dystopia that you are, are likely to find anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so please check that out. Um, I have a uh, super twisty uh, murder thriller called Comfort Me with Apples coming out in October. Um, as well as the Fairyland box set. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Cat Valenti, Patreon at Cat Valenti, pretty much everywhere at Cat Valenti, except Facebook, because apparently there's some other Cat Valenti out there who yoinked my name, and I'm CM Valenti on, uh, on Facebook. Excellent. Until next time, I should go. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.
Recording.